Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Philip Gradwell, Chief Economist at Chainalysis. Chainalysis is a blockchain analysis company providing data and analysis to government, agencies, exchanges, and financial institutions. Philip, it's great to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me. So before we get into it, would love to hear a little bit about what you did before crypto and, and you know, what brought you into the space and, and you know, eventually down the rabbit hole? Yeah, that life before crypto. Uh, so back then, I was actually working in an economics consultancy and mainly focusing on the economics of climate change. So essentially, how do you start changing the energy system so it starts to decarbonize? And you know, how do you change prices and so on to do that? But a lot of it was about kind of telling a story about what the future might look like. Uh, so spent that time talking to big energy companies and governments and NGOs and trying to tell that story. And then I've always liked, you know, technology and the internet as a side hobby. And so I was just sort of probably back in 2012 or so reading the internet and heard about Silk Road and sort of genuinely out of curiosity visited, kind of going, well, what's going on here? And in the same way that with climate change, you're sort of changing the rules of the game. I saw Bitcoin changing the rules of how that like market worked. So as an economist, I was like, this is interesting. This is transforming something in a totally new you know, direction. Um, and then I kind of forgot about it for a bit. And then Jonathan Levin, who was um, one of the co-founders of Chainalysis, he actually interned at my consultancy in 2013. So we spent a lot of time talking about Bitcoin that summer. And then when I felt like a change uh, a few years later, around early 2017, I was going, you know, where else can I go to explain, you know, how the world could go through a sort of transformational shift and crypto you know, is that area. And I joined Chainalysis in particular because it had the data set. You know, the thing that draws me to cryptocurrency among many things, but in particular is the fact that you have this complete transaction record. So you have this full data set of what's going on. And so the type of analysis you can do is just something that you cannot do anywhere else. Uh, and Chainalysis, you know, is a company that really has that data set the best. So that's kind of why I joined. So before we get into, um, you know, Chainalysis, you mentioned, you know, that you, you know, worked at an economics consultancy before and, and that your background is really on economics. So so your job at, at Chainalysis is chief economist and, and you're, you know, tasked with looking at cryptos from that economic lens. What does that mean? Yeah. So I think a lot of people who are in crypto and, and they perhaps they hear economists, they think about trading. That's actually not my focus. You know, I'm not in the day-to-day -day of, is the price going to go up or down? Um, although I guess I get asked that a lot. Instead, my job is to try and understand you know, what is the actual use case of cryptocurrency? And in particular, what does the data tell us about that? You know, let's get the big picture and understand, okay, there's actually been a structural shift where Bitcoin is now flowing you know, from the east to the west. What does that mean about the sort of two different markets that there are in Bitcoin? 
um, you know, as, as the liquidity changes, you know, as the price goes up at the moment, who's actually liquidating? Is it people who made like big gains a long time ago? And if so, what does that mean for you know the future price level? So it's more asking those bigger questions and doing that based on you know all of the data that we see on the blockchain, not just you know how the price is moving this hour. Right. No, that's super interesting, and I think it's more of you know taking a I guess a macro lens to crypto, right? Looking at crypto from a from a macro perspective, and I think you know certainly something that. Um, you know, will continue to be developed. And I think you're doing, you know, some great work at Chainalysis and, and we'll really get into that and, and what you're actually doing and, you know, some of the products that you guys are releasing. But, you know, taking a look at, you know, which, where the, you know, these wallet addresses are concentrating, where capital is flowing, I think are, are all, you know, super important, you know, questions to be asked. I mean, when we had this bull market in 2017 and earlier, there really was no data, right? It was very much a speculative game. And I think now with with a lot of the work that you and your team are doing and, and that others in the industry are doing across different data sets, um, it lets us paint a much more clear picture on what is actually going on in this industry. Um, Absolutely. Um, just almost a story on that. Like I, By the time I got out of everything else, I actually meant I joined Analysis, I think on the 4th of December, 2017. And so you know the price just skyrocketed like the week I joined. And because Chainalysis was one of the few companies that had some data, and back then it was much harder to access and we didn't know what the right questions were to ask, it was getting you know insane calls from journalists saying like, what the hell's going on? Uh, and had to be like, okay, I've been here like five days. <laughs> Where do we get the answer from? Um, so that was a lot of fun. It's, and it's funny too. It's like, it's like, you know, I get the question sometimes, you know, with, with a lot of the data that we have, like, you know, with our sentiment data is like, does the sentiment data say that Bitcoin's price is going to go up in the next 24 yeah. hours? I'm like, it's not that simple. Like it's, it's, you know, we need to ask bigger questions than that. We need to look at, you know, and I think you believe in this as well, but look at multiple different data sets together mm. to, to paint a much clearer picture. I'm excited to get into those questions, but let's start with, you know, what is Chainalysis? Um, and, and, you know, what types of clients does Chainalysis primarily service? Yeah, so, I mean, as you mentioned in the intro, you know, Chainalysis is the blockchain analysis company. But what that really means is, you know, a blockchain is a data set. So it's this record of all of the addresses that are making transactions with other addresses. But if you were to look at that, it, it's not enormously helpful. Like if anyone's ever looked at a block explorer, say on blockchain.com, they're like, okay, this is great. I can just see lots of letters and numbers sent a number to some other letters and numbers. What Chainalysis does is we structure that data to understand the entities that actually control those addresses. So now we can talk about the real world you know, businesses uh, that are actually moving crypto you know, from one business to another. And I mentioned businesses because most of our work is focused on understanding you know, which addresses, say, a set of exchanges control or a set of darknet markets. And then on that common set of data, we provide a whole bunch of different products. So we provide investigation products. Uh, so, you know, if you are the FBI and Twitter gets hacked and someone posts a Bitcoin address, you want to really follow the money of anyone that's actually sent Bitcoin to that so you can work back to who the hackers were. We also provide uh, anti-money laundering software for the exchanges. So they're required to actually you know, check what's coming in. Uh, and what's going out, make sure it doesn't go to a darknet market. And then we provide a set of services to financial institutions as well. Uh, so in particular, like just helping them understand the industry, stuff that I work on, helping them understand what's going on in the market. And so how do you actually 
tag or identify these different you know entities. For example, with the dark net market, I'm assuming there are a number of sellers in these marketplaces. Are you actually tagging individual addresses that you've seen participate in transactions in those markets? Like, how do you actually, you know, maybe you know, just taking a step back, just like at a at a, at a larger scale, how does Chainalysis go about identifying these different entities? Yeah, so there's two key steps. So one is the what we call the attribution. So you actually have to go and interact with these services. So if it's an exchange, you, know, you go make an account and you generate a deposit address and you then go make that deposit. It's actually very similar for a darknet market. And those attributions, they give you sort of a stake in the ground and you can now go, okay, we know that this address belongs to this service. And then there's the task of saying, well, there's a whole bunch of other addresses that are connected to that address. You know, they're sort of in the neighborhood. How can we know that they are also controlled by the same piece of software that generated that deposit address that I, I was able to interact with? And so we deduce really the patterns, you know, the logical patterns that mean all of these addresses must be controlled by the same entity. Uh, and like that's a very brief description of what is really quite a complicated you know, technical process, but it's can be really boiled down to those two steps and what that and so, allows you to do no it was just 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 gonna just gonna add quickly well I'll actually finish your thought but but then you know kind of follow up with you know I, I saw and i'm sure a lot of people saw the news about you guys adding support for privacy coins as well right which mm -hmm. may not necessarily be as obvious so interested in hearing you know how how you've gone about supporting you know private blockchains as well yeah so the blockchains so for example zcash um there you can actually have some addresses which are in a private pool and they will literally if you look at them in our software you'll see they are part of this shielded private pool so we actually can't see the transactions that are kind of within that blob but we can see the ones that come in and out and actually the majority of transfers on zcash for example um, are actually not shielded so it's kind of like i don't know if you ever played like world of warcraft uh there's like a fog of war um, so there's some stuff in the shielded pool that we can't see, uh, but you can see everything else that's, you know, in the clear. Yeah, got it. No, I mean, it's, 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 it's really interesting and, and something that's interested me, uh, as well. That's I think related, but, but not exactly related, right? It's, 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 it's more of taking that, I guess, you know, finance lens towards a lot of this data is, you know, j just like you do cluster addresses or cluster analysis on on groups of, of blockchain addresses to identify things like exchanges and darknet markets, have you guys thought about doing similar uh, analysis on on things like you know foundation wallet addresses, right? And and knowing how healthy some of these you know foundations that are supporting blockchains are, has, has that been something that you guys have have thought about or done any research into? So it's not actually something that I've dived into myself. Um, in a sense, it's kind of easy to do because you just need to know the wallets that that foundation controls, and then you can see the balances that they have. Uh, and as long as you've got, as you said, this good clustering, so grouping these other addresses together, um, you get a complete picture of their balance. And then you, know, you kind of know how much they've got, and you can also look at it over time and see where they've, you know, say, cashed out or where else they've got their funds from. I think, honestly, the difficulty that we have is um, it's taken, I mean, I've been at Chain Analysis for nearly three years uh, that we've had to build an awful lot of tooling uh, before you get to a point where you can get those clear answers. The other thing is with so much of this, it's actually not 
yet. When I don't think the industry is at the point yet of asking really specific questions. I mean, I'd love to be proved wrong, but the number of people who would really understand the importance of this foundation, you know, has this much in its treasury, or it cashed its Bitcoin out, you know, when the price was like this, and therefore the value of you know its tokens is going to be X. Number of people that really understand that's pretty small. I think most people want to know just how much Bitcoin in general went to exchanges this week. Um, you know, is that mean the number is going to go up or go down? So actually, I'm still at that point of trying to tell a much bigger story. Right. I think that makes sense. I think that you know, coming from uh, you know the way that we look at the market, and you know, it is very much from a, a more traditional finance background. And you know, we look and, and we had Evan Fung on the podcast recently, who who, who shared kind of similar thoughts is, you know, he's used to sitting in on earnings calls, right? Mm-hmm. And he's learned, used to, you know, seeing SEC filings and, and seeing the financials of companies. And, you know, I think we will get there. And I, I think you're right in saying that we're early. And I think, you know, the perspective of, of a lot of the, you know, I think a lot of traders in the crypto market didn't start as, as, you know, commodity traders or equity traders or, you know, futures traders, right? They started as crypto native traders. So I think inherently some of the questions that are being asked, are, are different. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think we will, you know, hopefully start asking some of those tougher questions. But I, but I think to your point, we need to address some of these more basic questions that you and your team are doing, um, you know, now, um, you know, as a starting point before we can even kind of get down that rabbit hole. So I think that's kind of a good segue into my next question, which is, you know, as a chief economist at Chainalysis, you know, what does your day-to-day look like? What, what are the projects that you're working on? Yeah. So, the day-to-day, well, I guess recently we launched a new website called Market Intel. If I can give it a plug, you should go to markets.chainalysis.com. Uh, it's got a whole bunch before, of great- Before you continue, it's awesome. It's really cool. I've spent a lot of time on it. So definitely go check it out. Pause the episode and and, and fill up back to you there. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, so my day-to-day, I mean, that's been live for about a month is honestly making sure that it all still makes sense um, and then working on going deeper into the data. So, you know, what we show there is the tip of the iceberg in terms of the sophistication that we can go to. And so I will spend my days going, okay, let's pull, you know, this set of data and let's see how things are performing relative to say a historical benchmark. So something I've been doing recently is looking at the number of Bitcoin that are being sent that have had a 25% or more uh, increase in their USD value since they were received. And looking at that week by week and going, wow, okay, this period that we're in at the moment, you know, this is actually only the third uh, period of time where there's been a multi-week um, period where the price has been above 10K. And people who have made those 25% plus gains, they are moving their Bitcoin pretty fast. Uh, because they're trying to lock in their profits. So then what does that mean about the market? Does it mean that actually there's this excess of supply hitting exchanges, which pushes the price down? Okay, let's go and look at the inflows into exchanges. How are their balances changing? So it's all about bringing those different types of data together and then thinking, how do I turn this into really a story and potentially even a product in the future to get that into more people's hands? Because we were talking earlier, I think people will come into the market when there's more data, but they need the kind of, they also need permission, I think, to enter. So if you're like a much larger investor, you need to know that there is some kind of common sense 
explanation for what you're seeing in the crypto market. And I think my day-to-day is about trying to articulate that. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. I think looking at things like the velocity of Bitcoin, um, you know, are, are definitely interesting. You know, diff, diff, definitely interesting ways of looking at the market. I mean, I think it's it's difficult looking at just an order book and looking at you know trade history to get a lot of that intel. But you know, because you know the Bitcoin blockchain is a public ledger, you can you know you can see a lot of those things and do a lot of that granular analysis around you know um, things like you know you know, percentage of Bitcoin that's locked in 25% gains. And it's really interesting to see, you know, something that we don't look at it on a day to day, but, um, you know, what traders are looking to do with their capital, like, are they moving their capital more once they get a lock in a 10% gain or a 25% gain? Uh, are, th- are there other questions that you kind of have top of head that, that are, are kind of next on your plate to, uh, to ask and to, to, to try to address? Yeah, I think, Stable coins are also fascinating um, and to try and understand you know, to what extent is their retail usage, um, to what extent are they starting to be used as a store of value actually, as people just go, you know what, I just want some dollars, I actually want it in crypto because that's better than having it in fiat dollars and therefore I'm not going to just use you know, my tether as a counterparty uh, in a trade, I'm just going to hold it. So understanding how they evolve or have evolved recently is a big question. And I think is also, I think it's really important because it informs perhaps how central bank digital currencies might work or how the kind of social coins like the Libras of the world might actually have demand. So for me, that's kind of like a big question. Uh, but then also, honestly, the sort of really interesting question at the moment is, is Bitcoin going to stay above 10K? And what are the dynamics driving that? Yeah, yeah, certainly. And so, um, you've already been at Chainalysis for, as you mentioned, I think three, three or so years. How have you, or 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 have you seen the regulatory landscape change since you first entered the space? And have you seen governments' understandings of cryptocurrency uh, evolve over the last few years? Yeah, so they've definitely evolved over the last few years. I think, I mean, obviously, being at Chainalysis, I perhaps have a closer view to at least some parts of the regulators than others. Um, because we work with them so you know, frequently and so closely. And I would actually say the regulator journey started quite a while before I even joined. Um, I actually think Chainalysis has a you know place in history in this. So the Silk Road really scared law enforcement because they were like, we cannot stop this. You know, that same, I guess, game-changing <laughs> uh, that I saw um, law enforcement saw that and were like, hmm, this, this is not good. How the hell do we get a handle on this? But then you turn up with blockchain analytics and you say, look, you can actually understand what's going on. You can trace these flows back to an exchange. You can get a measure of how much value is actually going in and out of this darknet market. And then that meant they actually you know, relaxed in a way. Um, and I think really over the last few years, law enforcement has become know, increasingly comfortable with cryptocurrency. Um, you know, there are famous quotes uh, of people saying, actually, it's better if you know, criminals commit crimes in Bitcoin because it's easier to trace. Um, you know, the Twitter hack was actually resolved remarkably fast, uh, in part because the blockchain trail, uh, you know, gave evidence that allowed them to sort of tie together various other bits of information and therefore uh, find the hackers. So from that side, I think you're actually seeing, you know, 
really an extraordinary level of comfort. It's still, there are specialists in each of these regulatory agencies or law enforcement bodies who really understand crypto, and it's perhaps not so widely shared you know, across the department, um, but at least that expertise is there, and there is this kind of core understanding. But I think what really happened is, you know, when law enforcement became comfortable with cryptocurrency, they sort of handed the problem, if you like, to the financial regulators. You know, they're like, hey, this is fine, we can deal with this. Now it's up to you guys to deal with it as a financial asset rather than, you know, a criminal asset. Um, and the financial regulators, you know, when I joined 2017, really huge boom for crypto. And I think certainly the view of the regulators, and I actually do share this, I think there was a fair amount of you know, consumer harm in that. So there was a lot of retail investors that got in uh, and they lost a lot of money uh, because they, you know, bought high and they eventually capitulated in, you know, 2018 in the winter. Um, yeah, they were sold, you know, un- unregistered securities as non-accredited investors, right? They were, you know, there were plenty, there have been plenty of Ponzi schemes in crypto, you know, whether it's BitConnect or yeah. um, or the PLUS token scam in China and, and some of it kind of continues. Um, so certainly in agreement with you that, you know, th- there is a place for government um, in, in this market. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think um, one of the most common debates I have is I say, you know, if you want cryptocurrencies to go mainstream, then you need that degree of regulation because most people want to be able to purchase cryptocurrency and not kind of worry about where it came from. You know, it's a bit like, they want the kind of organic certified cryptocurrency. You know, they don't want to worry, did it come from a dot net market or whatever? They just Absolutely want free cryptocurrency. Exactly. <laughs> and But then a lot of, um, you know, early Bitcoiners will be like, we don't want any of that gluten-free Bitcoin. Uh, you know, we want the real thing. We don't care. We don't care about that mainstream Give adoption. us the gluten. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think that's that's kind of the debate in the industry. Although, honestly, I think we're kind of in the gluten-free phase uh, of Bitcoin now. And, you know, KYC, uh, so know your customer, anti-money laundering um, is basically in place now for almost all large exchanges. You know, recently BitMEX, for example, started to say, look, we're actually going to do KYC. So I think that side And I think a lot of the bigger holders of crypto are also very much pro-regulation. I mean, if you look at the, the Winklevoss twins who, you know, at least claim to, and you know, I wouldn't be skeptical of it. Own you know one percent of the total Bitcoin supply. I mean, they've been with Gemini, you know, mm-hmm. probably the most active, you know, since twenty fifteen, in trying to you know, you know, become a New York trust, get a bit license, you know, make sure that they're you know operating, uh, you know, cleanly. And I think you know there are a lot of big players in the space that that share that belief now as well. Absolutely. I mean, if they want to get as rich as Zuckerberg, then they need Bitcoin adoption to really ramp up. And the only way that happens is by getting a bigger market. And the only way that happens is by making sure it's you know reasonably well regulated. Yeah, certainly. And so you hit on earlier um, the the Twitter hack, and Chainalysis actually played a, a big role in two recent um, regulatory related news stories that came out. The first is the confiscation of funds from Al Qaeda and and uh, you know countering terrorist financing, and the second. Um, you know, being you know the role Chainalysis played in identifying the Twitter hacker. Can you give us a, a you know a bit more background on those events and how Chain Chainalysis played a role in stopping that illicit activity? Yeah. So on the uh, terrorist financing 
investigation. So this is actually a relatively long-running investigation. Um, you know, there have always been concerns around the use of cryptocurrency for terrorism financing. This was a big uh, investigative effort. Uh, ended with uh, more than one million dollars worth of cryptocurrency actually being seized. And you know, those things are kind of complicated. I might not go into the details right now. I think the interesting thing, though, is to show that actually the tools are there to take action against this. And you know, this was the biggest haul of cryptocurrency that law enforcement has had from a terrorist financing uh, organization so far. And you know, it doesn't take many dollars to cause a lot of harm, but as it were, it's only a million dollars. So I think this is actually a good example of realizing that, yes, this risk exists, but you know, it could be investigated uh, and could lead to some really good outcomes. On the Twitter hack, um, I mean, yeah, this is times where it's interesting to be in cryptocurrency. And you check the news, you're like, oh, Twitter's been hacked. That's interesting. You're like, oh, hang on. They just posted a Bitcoin address. Uh, and you know, all of a sudden you're like, okay, things are going to be busy at chain analysis for a little while. Because I think this is actually a great example of where blockchain analysis can be very helpful for you know what would otherwise be a really complicated investigation. Because uh, these Bitcoin addresses, you could trace back and you could actually link them to you know, other clusters of addresses that were controlled by the hackers because they had actually been operating for a little while and they had been receiving payments for some of the handles earlier on. And so it was actually possible to understand, okay, these are kind of pre-hack transfers versus post-hack transfers. And therefore, if you look at the pre-hack ones, you can be like, okay, these guys are involved in you know, something else. They're not just the people sending Bitcoins to these addresses because it appeared all over Twitter. And that then allowed um, you know, law enforcement to trace back and, for example, identify uh, the exchanges that they should go and you know, ask for, uh, for the KYC information, you know, which they're entitled to do because there's actually you know, evidence the crime had been committed. And that then allowed them, law enforcement to piece together a bigger picture of who the perpetrators were, and which led to arrests you know, remarkably fast. Um, I mean, it was a few weeks, right? Exactly. It was, yeah, and unfortunately, it, was... it does, you know, they weren't, this wasn't the Russian military intelligence hacking. Um, you know, it was, yeah, certainly one was a minor. So it's kind of almost a bit sad um, yeah, that, that they kind of did an amazing hack in a way. And sadly, there are going to be some big consequences for that. Um, but at least, you know, using blockchain analysis, they were able to. Wait, wait, wait we lost quickly. you. Sorry. We lost oh. you at this wasn't the Russian uh, oh. military intelligence. Yeah, so at least this wasn't Russian military intelligence. Um, so if you go back to, say, the hacking um, of the Democratic National Convention uh, and the posting of their emails on web servers, that was Russian military intelligence, uh, and those web servers were paid for in Bitcoin. So I think this time around, there was that kind of concern that it could be that serious. Turns out it wasn't, but at least the blockchain analysis you know, this time around allowed those answers to be you know, achieved really quickly. And so this isn't something that we've talked about before, but I'm curious. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing a lot within the crypto space are these new YouTube scams. And I'm not sure if you've seen them, but basically, you know, they'll what they'll do is they'll show like some old press conference of, you know, some famous person, maybe it's Brad Garlinghouse, who's the founder of Ripple, talking about Bitcoin with a Bitcoin deposit address or 
you know, whoever else and basically saying, you know, hey, for the next X amount of minutes, deposit one Bitcoin, we'll give you back two, right? And so I, I wonder if, if you guys have done any research into that. And if, you know, you think those are very much coordinated by small groups of people, or it's, it's you know, a lot of people that are kind of on their own, you know, participating in these activities. And, and it can be a more broader question. It doesn't need to just be on the, the YouTube, uh, you know, question, but across all of these kind of scams that we see within crypto, do they tend to be coordinated groups or, or one-off individuals? Yeah, so I think honestly the biggest scams tend to be coordinated, but I'm not an expert on the YouTube ones. They may or may not be done um, by kind of a set of individuals. The ones that you really need to sort of look out for have been the Ponzi schemes. So, you know, Plus Token being a big example of that. And there they operate on a slightly almost more active way than just, hey, there's a YouTube video, send some Bitcoin, you'll get a bit more. They actually will actively pay out. So they generate some social proof that people could, you know, really make these great returns. Um, and that just brings more and more people in. And then all of a sudden, no more money comes out. Those can become enormous. Um, and those are, you know, very professional operations. And so how do the, you know, when these, you know, schemes accumulate all of this crypto, right? Obviously, you know, the work that you guys are doing is trying to help government agencies identify, you know, who the individuals are behind these schemes, but how are they actually liquidating, um, you know, out of that cryptocurrency that, that they're collecting? Because in the case of, of Plus Token, for example, people were able to identify that this was a Ponzi scheme and, you know, wallet addresses have, have been labeled as, you know, being related to, to Plus Token. I mean, are they using like are they using mixers like what what are they actually doing and how are they actually getting out of their you know positions or is it something that's become very difficult because of the work you know that you guys are doing yeah so plus token was interesting in that they almost exploited i think a a little bit of a loophole potentially um in the know your customer requirements in that they went through a lot of over the counter brokers not really in the West, uh, you know, in other parts of the world. And those OTC brokers, they had already gone through verification with the exchanges and they had a lot of legitimate deal flow as well. And so maybe they didn't ask hard enough questions of when the plus token people turned up. Maybe it was coordinated. And in fact, the Chinese authorities did arrest a set of OTC brokers in relation to the plus token uh, Ponzi scheme. But so the plus token Ponzi scheme would essentially funnel their Bitcoin through these OTC brokers who would then sell it on. So there they were able to, you know, find a loophole in the system. More generally, actually, it's become kind of harder and harder for criminals to launder their funds. So, uh, you know, on Market Intel, this website, we actually show how much Bitcoin um, and Ethereum has, you know, either is currently sitting in an illicit service like a darknet market or a scam, or has actually left those addresses controlled by the darknet market or other illicit activity, but has yet to be cashed out. And it's around 900,000 Bitcoin uh, is you know, in that category. And if any of our I mean, that's pretty significant. That's like 5%. Yeah, yeah. no, it's huge. Um, like a lot of that is actually Bitcoin from the Silk Road that hasn't been cashed out. It's things like the Bitfinex hack. It's still some Mt. Gox coins that have to come. So a lot of it's kind of historical. Um, but it means that if it's any exchange that uses our AML software, they'll get an alert as soon as it hits their exchange and they'll be able to act. 
Yeah, no, that's 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 an interesting point. I actually wanted to get into the, the dark net point, but before we even go down that road, um, you know, one question that I have is, you know, because you need to remember your public and private keys for your Bitcoin address, lots of people have forgotten their keys, right, or have lost their cold storage wallet or whatever else, whatever else there, you know, that exists. Do you guys have any sort of estimate of what percentage of the Bitcoin supply is just gone forever? Is that is that something that you guys have researched or thought about researching? Yeah, so um, we have researched what we call lost Bitcoin. Uh, so a sort of central estimates around a 3.7 million Bitcoin uh, is in that lost category. Uh, so this is Bitcoin that just has not moved for years and years and years. Um, and I think what's more importantly is it's not it's like a, not a single Satoshi from any of the addresses uh, that you know are controlled by these long-term holders has moved in such a long time. So and do you do you consider you know you know what are, is believed to be you know the coins that Satoshi himself uh, mined as part of that? Yes, and that's like between one to two million Bitcoin. Right. So it's it, it's it can be up to half of the total <laughs> loss supply, which is incredible. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I mean, it still means that 50% of that lost supply is from other often early Bitcoiners who have lost it or, and this is the thing, either they've lost it or they are waiting for some price uh, that maybe will hit, but they are really patient. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, if this is capital that hasn't, what, do you, what are you guys looking at? Like, you know, eight, 10 years as, as that time frame or? Yeah, so we grade it. So I think uh, certainly none of the lost Bitcoin will have moved within the last five years. And then there's sort of an upper and lower bound. So uh, I think our lower bound is like hasn't moved in seven years. Right. It's 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 interesting to see. And I think from you know an economist lens, you'll appreciate this. But between the 3.7 million Bitcoin that is, you know, potentially lost, you know, as well as like the Bitcoin that are are locked in these ETPs like GBTC, Right, that they're locked in these exchange traded products. I mean, the circulating, the actual supply of Bitcoin, which is circulating on the market, is, is, you know, you know, significantly smaller. Right, exactly. It's significantly smaller than the total supply that's out there. Yeah. So I actually think of Bitcoin as having really sort of two almost reservoirs of Bitcoin. There's one set of Bitcoin that moves around really quickly. So that's around 2 million Bitcoin that's sort of floating and is available to be bought and sold at any sort of given time. And then there's you know, the rest. Uh, you know, of course, some of that's lost. Uh, most of that, it's like 11 million Bitcoin or plus, is held by people who really have patterns that look like they are long-term investors who are unwilling to give up their Bitcoin. They just don't move it very long. Uh, sorry, they don't move it very often. Uh, they will receive far more Bitcoin than they ever send out. So, you know, so they're just almost like sinks and they are the long-term investors. And then you've got this sort of liquidity pool. And what I find fascinating is when the Bitcoin price goes down, for example, and you know is down for a long time, then the liquidity pool starts to drain uh, and people will just kind of put their Bitcoin into storage and they'll look like long-term investors. And then a time right. like now, when prices are going up, you see a little bit spill over from that long-term investor pool into that liquid pool. Right. No, that's it's it's fascinating. I mean, I I'd be so interested and it would be very difficult obviously, but just to combine all the different metrics like the amount of bitcoin which is going into wrapped bitcoin and the amount of bitcoin that's going into ETPs and the amount of bitcoin that's going into like 
you know, retirement accounts and the amount of Bitcoin that's lost and trying to actually figure out. And, and I look, I'm sure you guys probably have, you know, one of the best gauges on this in the entire market, but what that actual supply of, of, of Bitcoin is and, you know, what the kind of dynamics are that exist in the market. And if, you know, we're, we're getting to a point with, you know, look, I th- I'm not one that believes that having is as significant as a lot of other people. Um, you know, necessarily believe it to be, but with the supply reduction of the, the having combined with, you know, all of this wrap Bitcoin that's going into DeFi combined with these long-term holders, I mean, you know, the supply is just, you know, even though it's increasing and in a way it kind of feels like it's de- decreasing to me. So, I mean, I would actually agree with that. And I think it's one of the almost paradoxes of Bitcoin is the more popular it gets, um, especially Bitcoin with its, you know, digital gold investment thesis, um, the more popular it gets, the more it looks like an investment asset, therefore the more people just hold it. And therefore, in a sense, like the less certainly on-chain activity might be going on. So people will just be buying it and holding it. And actually there'll be relatively little Bitcoin moving on the blockchain. There'll be relatively uh, small amount of Bitcoin available as sort of the underlying asset on exchanges. And so I think, you know, you'll see increasing amounts of leverage um, because people just don't have access to as much Bitcoin as they want to trade because everyone else is just hoarding it. And so I know you, you've you done some interesting research on this before and, and you sent it over to me and I'm not sure if you have this off the top of your head, but you, you mentioned before, you know, kind of numbers of, of how many people are actually interacting directly on the Bitcoin blockchain versus how many, you know, accounts there are uh, that are interacting with exchanges. Do you, do you, I mean, do you have any, you know, kind of sense of what those numbers look like? Yeah, so I think the most important thing to realize is that in terms of numbers of users, most of you know, cryptocurrency activity happens through exchange websites. And that's sort of tens of millions of people um, you know, interacting, say, every month. And that's, I think some people find that confusing. Uh, maybe it's obvious to others, but you know, if we talk so much about the blockchain and all the activity happening there most people are actually engaging with Bitcoin just via the web browser. Um, but then in terms of what's actually happening on chain, so we think in terms of active users, there's over 300,000 you know, active users per week. So compare that to sort of the millions per week you might be seeing on the actual websites. It means that you're sort of orders of magnitude less uh, actual people moving things on chain. But it's not just about the active users, it's also about the owners. As I said, there's this big pool of Bitcoin that doesn't really move. Harder to estimate the numbers there, but there's probably millions of people now uh, who actually hold Bitcoin on the blockchain. So that might be through their private, you know, through a, a wallet on their phone app. And then right. you've got people who will be holding on exchanges. I actually think that's in the sort of tens of millions. So that's by far the biggest group of cryptocurrency users are people who, you know, so you made a Coinbase account at one time, wired some fiat into it, bought some Bitcoin and have left it there or are buying it through Square, for example. And do you have any sense of what that average holder looks like? You know, how much Bitcoin they're holding or if they're if these these users are accumulating over time or if they just bought at one point and are just sitting on it. I mean, is there, um, you know, is, is there any data that you got? And look, I'm sure you guys could get it, but just off the top of your head, as well as have you seen any interesting trends between, you know, East and West, right? Like are traders in Asia, uh, you know, that are operating on Asian hours more likely to be operating peer to peer versus, uh, which would mean, you know, on the Bitcoin blockchain versus on exchange? Are there any, you know, interesting demographic trends that you've seen? Yeah. So I think it's important to understand that 
Bitcoin ownership is still pretty concentrated. So I forget the exact numbers, but it's easily the majority of the value that say moves into exchanges is moved in, I think like under 5% of all of the transfers. So you have whales, if you like, who just move the value in and out of exchanges. Um, And then I think you get about a million transfers per week that are under $10,000, which is sort of more on the retail side. So yeah, I think it really splits into people that move very large amounts in, and they obviously account for the majority of value. And then you've sort of got this longer tail of people who have, you know, less than $10,000 and move it around. Um, you know, I think that's probably the day traders. In terms of East versus West, so I think you see some interesting dynamics there. Certainly on exchanges, we see what we call higher trade intensity. So there's actually more trading happening uh, for every sort of unit of the underlying asset. Um, so that will mean that people will actually, either they're keeping their cryptocurrency on the exchange more and it's changing hands more often or actually a lot more people in the west are just using exchanges as wallets you know so as a custodian so they you know send their bitcoin to coinbase because they just value the password reset uh, option rather than looking after private keys whereas in asia there's a much bigger emphasis on trading the other key thing in asia is the popularity of tether so there it's not just used on the exchanges, it's also used off the exchanges. Um, and there you do see a bit more peer-to-peer activity. Yeah, that's certainly certainly something that's really interesting to me. And and you know, something you know interesting to me about about Asia as well. And you know, I'd be curious if you guys have done any research into this. And it sounds like that's kind of the rab- you know, one of the next rabbit holes you want to, you know, go go down, but is you know, foreign remittances are massive in Asia. Um it's you know you know there's 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 massive usage of you know foreign workers in different places whether it be in Middle Eastern countries from from uh, you know you know having foreign workers from Asia or you know having Filipino foreign workers in different countries and interesting to um, you know interested to know whether or not you're seeing any peer to what what appears to be peer to peer you know transactions there using Tether which which would look you know something akin to like a remittance. So I mean. At the moment, it's still a bit anecdotal. So the one of the big challenges with blockchain analysis in general is so much of the flow is just Bitcoin moving from an exchange to an exchange. And so you've really got to strip that all out before you can start to understand these smaller activities. And so I'm not kind of confident enough to say, yes, I can definitely see that. But I think there's, you know, some evidence in the data and it's something I want to investigate more. The thing I think that's interesting from the geographic flows is actually recently we've seen quite a big shift from the east to the west, certainly in terms of Bitcoin. So I think there's there's actually been in the last sort of year uh, quite a big net flow of Bitcoin, uh, both from the east to the west but also from the crypto to crypto exchanges to the crypto to fiat exchanges. Uh, it's been around a billion dollars, uh, I think, since mid-March. So that's kind of interesting that I actually think there's been this sort of flight. Maybe it's to... uh, thank you, Trump, for the stimulus checks. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't think that's had a big enough effect. I'm, I'm, I'm half kidding, yeah. yeah. I think it's people, basically, there's a lot more demand recently is coming from people who are onboarding via the fiat exchanges. 
Right. And and would you think that would be a more of a, a retail audience? I don't think that's necessarily means more of a retail audience. It could also be regulated, yep. you know, institutions as well that are looking to just onboard with fiat and aren't necessarily, you know, comfortable holding a stable coin. Exactly. And I think that's why it's flowing into the Western exchanges as well, because they are the ones that are getting that institutional demand. Yeah, so that's that's super interesting. So kind of a, you know, you know, we 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 kind of just jumped right into it. Um, you know, you know, the transition from, you know, you know, chain analysis focusing on focusing on regulation to, um, you know, you know, we're talking about economic and financial data. Um, but you know, you guys just released chain analysis market intel a few weeks ago. You, you've you know, chain analysis an entity has been in the market for you know, a, you know, five plus years. Why, why did you feel the time was right now for chain analysis to release a financial data product? Yeah, so. Really, a combination of factors. I, I think the biggest one, and it's you know why I joined analysis. It's, it's that this data exists, but so few people in cryptocurrency make decisions based on data. Um, and I'm like, it doesn't need to be this way. We actually can surface all of this blockchain data to give people a real sense of what's actually going on in the market and how cryptocurrency is being used. And we started to see that demand coming, you know, more and more from you know, the financial institutions, uh, also the financial regulators. More and more people that I spoke to were saying, look, cryptocurrency has been around for long enough. We're taking it seriously now. But to get involved, we need some data to understand what's going on. You know, we need to be able to say, look, there is real use case, or you know, this is the overall level of risky activity, and look, it's low. We need to say, you know, what's the amount of supply that's liquid? before we can make those kind of investment decisions. And we thought, look, we can provide that. So let's put it up there. And I think the decision though, to make it as a public website that's available for free was because Genalysis has already if you like, done the hard work of preparing that data. So it's relatively easy for us to go and you know, query our database and you know, present that. And we wanted to do that so that we can really educate people because it's only by getting that next wave of investors in and growing the market that Chainalysis, to be honest, can grow, you know, to the size that we want it to be. So we were seeing right. that I demand. I think that's fair. I think, I think if for anybody in this industry, it's still a matter of growing that, you know, we're, we're, we're all trying to take pieces of a small pie. And I think growing yeah. that, that pie is incredibly important. Yeah. And, and so, so how can investors and traders use this, you know, on-chain data or on-chain data more broadly to make more informed investment decisions? Yeah, so I break it down into data that's actually about trading. So the market conditions at the moment, uh, and then also the demand, the supply, and the risk. As well, it's also important to look at the generation. So how many new assets are being produced? On the trading side, it's things like how much Bitcoin is actually flowing into exchanges. And that matters because the Bitcoin that goes to exchanges is typically going to be sold. So it's how much selling pressure there's going to be. On the demand side, it's about you know, actually how is the crypto being used? How much of it's actually going in and out of exchanges versus other use cases? So what's interesting is um, in Bitcoin, I think it's sort of five times as much Bitcoin flows into exchanges than it does into all of the other use cases combined. But on Ethereum, it's actually about equal. So you could say, look, ETH really has some use cases beyond speculation and trading. Bitcoin, still much more about speculation. So what are those other ETH use cases that you mentioned? So that like will be smart contracts and DeFi and so on. Right. 
Got it. Which is which is still arguably a bit of speculation as well, but I think a little bit <laughs> yeah. different. It's a bit um, more creative speculation. Creative speculation. Creative gambling. Yeah. Um, but uh, something interesting to me has been, you know, we've started to see, you know, certainly some more institutional adoption of on-chain data, um, and you know, institutions taking a more data-driven approach to, to crypto markets. I wonder if, you know, just like you have order book spoofing in well, you have it in crypto as well, but you have it in, you know, equity markets, right? Where, where, where people try to pretend like there is more, you know, buying or selling pressure than there actually is. I wonder if you'll start to see that with on-chain flows. Like, I wonder if large whales can just like put a billion bucks on exchanges and scare people into thinking that the market's going to crash. Like I, 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 one, I wonder if you guys have seen that yet. But, and two, if that's something that, that, that you foresee potentially happening in the future. So I think, um, we have seen whales put large amounts of you know, Bitcoin onto exchanges. Often they've had to work a little bit harder than just put it there to scare people. Uh, you know, there have been cases where you can essentially tell by linking up the different addresses uh, through blockchain analysis that they have, say, sent a lot of Bitcoin to a derivatives exchange. You've then seen a very uh, contrarian position being taken. So people, for example, going really short when the price is still rising and you know, really short, like very large positions. And then shortly after, um, there is a transfer of Bitcoin to a spot exchange that say happens to be part of the basket uh, of spot exchanges that the derivatives exchange uses its price index. You then see some big sell orders, the price then goes down, then that means the derivatives contracts pay out. Um, right. So, you know, we have seen that. I do think it's actually cleared up a lot recently. Well, we saw that with with BitMEX, right? I think it was Bitstamp or one of the smaller exchanges represented quite a large portion of their their spot pricing. And, you know, by crashing the price on one of those exchanges, you're able to basically force, you know, a cascading amount of liquidations on these derivative exchanges as well. Yeah, it's not always done maliciously. There have also been some cases of, I think, just bad traders. Because remember, a lot of people who got into Bitcoin early didn't know exactly. You know, they're not experts in. We've we've to, seen yeah, we've seen people trading millions of dollars spot on an exchange. Yeah, certainly. exactly, and doing it perfectly innocently. There have been times where you can actually connect the addresses, and you'd be like, okay, these guys are doing this different things um, from the same you know set of addresses they control. But back to your kind of original point, I don't think um, people are going to try and spoof the volumes on chain because unless you're doing something like I just described of, you know, taking a derivative position and crashing the price, I just don't think it's going to be worth the risk. You've actually got to have an awful lot of capital under your control and you've got to be really careful as your treasury management moving in and out, you might be taking that counterparty risk. Like Yeah, no, that, I think that makes sense. Yeah, people that have a lot of Bitcoin move it on and off exchanges all the time because they really do not want it sitting there for very long. Right. Right. You don't want, I mean, we've seen time and time again, exchanges get hacked. So, you know, the risk of actually physically having capital, you know, not, you know, not your keys, not your coins, right. You know, the, the risk of physically not controlling your capital is, is, um, you know, certainly a risk in this market when, when we've had, you know, things like the, um, you know, you mentioned a few of the, um, you know, the earlier, the earlier hacks, you know, whether it's Mt. Gox or, or, or any of the other ones, right. Where, where these large exchanges get hacked. So that, that certainly makes, makes sense. Um, 
So I guess my next question would be, you know, th- there's obviously a lot of, of usage or use cases for, you know, financial analysis using on-chain data. But what if, what if any challenges exist with using, uh, you know, blockchain-based data? So I think the key thing is that it's actually not very simple, as in it, it, it's a complicated data set. You know, on Market Intel, like I've spent a very long time both trying to work out what is the sort of small set of metrics that are most insightful, but we've also done an awful lot of processing to give you the metric that has the sort of most signal in it. If you just look at what I call sort of raw blockchain concepts, like number of addresses, you won't be able to get any signal out of it because people just generate as many addresses as they want. And so it's very, very noisy. And so you've really got to clean that up before you can get anything useful out of it. And I think people don't, um, you know, if you wanted to roll your own sort of blockchain analysis, you're going to very, very rapidly find yourself in, I think, one of the deeper holes, you know, rabbit holes in crypto that there is. Um, if you want to understand how Bitcoin flows b- between two exchanges, like it is not easy because you've actually got to trace through, you know, many, many hops and you've got to understand what's in between and like the level of complexity that it gets to is really high. It's possible to reduce that and turn that into, you know, a simple set of metrics like, you know, this much Bitcoin went from a crypto to crypto exchange to a crypto to fiat exchange. But there's just a lot of machinery underneath that that combines a lot of data science, a lot of data engineering, and a lot of understanding about just how blockchains work and about how dresses work and you know how people make transactions. So it's a big mix of difficult stuff. It can be processed, but it requires, I think, a level of sort of sophistication um, or it requires a lot of processing to get that simplicity. Yeah, I think that I think that certainly makes sense. You know, you see a lot of different platforms put up metrics, you know, to, to your point, like number of active addresses or total transaction volume and fees and things like that. And, and on their own, they don't necessarily mean much. Um, but it's, it's, it's getting into, you know, the, the granularity and, and the cleanliness of the data. And that's kind of, you know, the way that we think about, you know, sentiment data as well, right? If you just went, you know, online and you tried to look at every single message anywhere on the internet men- messaging EOS and tried to make sense of that, well, it means nothing out of context, right? Are you talking about the camera, you know, Canon's camera called EOS? Mm-hmm. Or are you talking about the cryptocurrency EOS, right? Are you you know, what is the context of the conversation? Is it becoming increasingly more positive? Are there people faking the conversation, right? And I think it's it's similar on chain, right? Where if you just take it at face value, it's very difficult to, to do any sort of analysis of that data and to make sense of it. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I mean, something, I should have said this earlier when you were saying like, what's the main thing I do each day? Um, one of the hardest things about on-chain analysis as well is there's very few places you can go to check your numbers because you know, often I'm the first person to have developed this particular metric. So it's like, how do I know I'm wrong? Um, you know, how do I know there's not a coding error in here, which means that we've accidentally like increased this by 10 times. Um, and so you have to spend a lot of time like working out those sense checks because it's very much the frontier of, you know, the understanding of what's going on. 
Yeah, no, I think that I think that makes sense. And it's funny because we, we, we do, you know, some of our own metrics as well. And, and the same thing and trying to trying to fact check it. But I think a good example, you know, to your point is like the Ethereum supply question <laughs> yeah. that came up on Twitter the other day, right? You know, what is the actual supply of Ethereum? And nobody really knew how to check it. So, you know, people started writing their, you know, their own code to audit the Ethereum supply. And I think that's, that's, that's something that's pretty fascinating. So, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, you know, metrics that don't necessarily work. Uh, or that that are a bit difficult to understand at face value. Uh, so my question is, what are your favorite on-chain metrics or blockchain metrics to look at, and and what, you know, what are those data points are available to users on uh, chain analysis market intel? Yeah, so I think like my favorite and most simple one is just the amount of cryptocurrency that is flowing into exchanges. So, like, what was it today? I don't know. So this was yesterday. Uh, there was about. 82,414 Bitcoin that flowed into cryptocurrency exchanges. Uh, and you know that's actually way above, uh, it's about 10,000 Bitcoin above the 180-day average. So you're getting way more than we see normally. But even if you go back and you look at things like there's a real Monday to Friday uh, versus Saturday-Sunday effect, suddenly if you see really high inflows on a Sunday, it's actually been followed by some serious price action the next day because it looks like people are sort of getting ready ahead of Monday demand. So that very simple metric often tells me quite a lot about what's going on. Um, my other favorite one, at least at the moment, uh, which I mentioned before, is how much Bitcoin is moving at you know a significant gain, like a 25% plus gain. Uh, and the reason I like that one so much um, is because it really tells you, are people taking their profits? You know, are they saying, okay, this price is high, I've made enough money, I actually want to hedge my bets. I don't want, you know, I want to move my Bitcoin now before the price might fall. So I think that really tells you about the sort of broader aggregate you know, investor sentiment. Uh, I don't actually put that on Market Intel, but I have a weekly newsletter, which you can subscribe to on the site, uh, where I, I've actually been using that metric quite a bit recently. Something that would be interesting to, to see as well and to explore is, does it matter how old the address is as well? Like, is an older address, you know, more likely to take that 25% gain, you know, a Bitcoin address which has existed since 2014 or 2015 or whatever the year is? Or is it newer addresses, right? Like if you just have somebody who's watching Dave Portnoy, you know, day trade Orchid and, and Bitcoin, you know, are they more likely to lock in that 25% gain versus somebody who's been, you know, more active in this space for the last five or six years? Yeah. So, I mean, great question that actually wasn't planted. Like that's literally the data I was playing with today um, because we have what we call it the joint distribution between the dollar gain and how long it was held. Um, so still working through to get conclusions on that. But that's the kind of richness that you can get with on-chain data. Um, there are so many different views that you can get on how a you know, entity or a set of addresses are behaving. And you can actually yeah, understand how all these metrics work at the same time. So it's like, is this entity typically operating in East Asia? How long is this Bitcoin being held? How much gain has it had? You know, How many hops does it tend to take to get to an exchange from that address? How many different counterparties has it got? All of these different variables are available at the entity level. And that's makes it super interesting. Yeah. So, you know, on-chain analysis is is really, you know, fascinating to me as, as well. But my question for you is, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is flows of money and flows of capital, right? Which, you know, kind of, um, 
you know, make crypto feel more like a currency in the way that we're actually looking at it versus like a stock which has, you know, fundamentals, right? When, when, we're, when we're looking at Apple stock, you know, sure, we're looking at insider trading and we're looking at how, you know, stock and, and, and is flowing. But we're also looking at, you know, the earnings of Apple, you know, their revenant, revenue, the dividends, you know, share growth, um, you know, whether or not they're going to have a stock buyback, you know, how their earnings call went, new partnerships. You know, how do you define fundamentals for crypto? Do you think there are fundamentals in this market? It's a great question. And I think on-chain data really tells you almost about the supply conditions, about what the liquidity, you know, how much Bitcoin is available to be bought at any particular time. I think you then need to you know, look at things like the tie does to actually understand demand. You know, how many people are actually going to be willing to buy that Bitcoin as it comes onto exchanges? And honestly, I think that interplay of supply and demand is as close to a f- short, medium-term fundamental as you can get. In terms of a longer-term fundamental, like understanding perhaps how much Bitcoin is locked up by people who just typically don't want to sell it, and therefore if more people were to enter, how high would the price have to go for those people to part with their Bitcoin? But then the question is, why are those people so reticent to part with their Bitcoin? What fundamental value do they see? Uh, and you know that I still looking for the metrics that allow us to quantify that. So I think we're getting to a point where there are fundamentals for the overall you know, liquidity of the market in the sort of weeks to months ahead. I think beyond that, in terms of you know, why is Bitcoin valuable, it really is because of that demand and that belief and where could that go, we're still finding out. Yeah, I think, you know, I, 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 I certainly agree with that, um, you know, thesis. But, you know, do you think it, it differs between Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies? Because in my head, to me, there's Bitcoin and there's everything else and kind of the, you know, the fundamental value of Bitcoin as a as a store of value and as a digital gold tends to be different than the, the, the value proposition or the narratives that some of these other altcoins, you know, you know, your non-Bitcoin cryptocurrencies are seeing. Do, do you think there is a difference, you know, between those entities or do you think it's similar? Uh, no, you're absolutely right. There's a big difference. Like I, I really think about things as sort of Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tether, everything else. Um, you know, Ethereum has moves a lot of on-chain value. There's a lot of um, stocks of Ethereum that's held that have had, you know, big gains. There's a lot of the interesting use cases that we sort of touched upon earlier. Uh, and then Tether just as a new frontier for, you know, fiat currencies going digital tells us a lot. And then, yeah, there's this long tail, which honestly, I still think the biggest fundamental for them is what is the Bitcoin price? Yeah, I mean, something that I've, I, you know, I heard the other day, which I found super interesting is basically, you know, when, and, and I think I may have brought this up on another episode, but, you know, when nobody's talking about crypto by Bitcoin, when everybody's talking about, you know, when your grandma starts talking about Bitcoin by shit coins, right? You know, it, it yeah. feels like there's a little bit of, you know, in, in the market, when nothing is performing, Bitcoin tends to outperform. But when Bitcoin is performing really well, you know, people are either scared of just the dollar value of Bitcoin, just looking at twelve or thirteen thousand dollars, what I think it's twelve thousand dollars right now, whatever it is, you know, looking at the price and saying it's a lot or saying, oh, I missed out on my gains, and then kind of shifting into these, you know, illiquid, you know, shit, shit coins, I guess. Um, and uh, 
you know, basically just riding on the tail of Bitcoin, but not necessarily looking for anything other than speculative gains. Yeah. Um, and so beyond on-chain indicators, what other forces do you think are at play in this market? And, you know, we've talked about a few of them, but, you know, what what do you think investors should be looking at and, and what what is actually moving the prices of digital assets? And the market structure and the industry structure and who are the players? You know, I think we forget that actually there are some really sort of big companies in crypto that have a lot of money and have their own business plans and perhaps even their own agenda. So, you know, Binance, if they try and decentralize because they see decentralization as the way forward, that could fundamentally change, you know, how blockchain technology operates and therefore how cryptocurrencies work and how they're operated. Um, you know, if a derivatives market were to blow up or become heavily regulated, or if indeed there was to be a derivatives market open up in the US that was regulated and open to retail investors. What you know, Tether is many good things, but you know, still questions around how it's audited and you know what the funds, uh, whether it's fully backed and you know what happens actually if that were to implode, it would be really serious for the crypto industry. So, you know, this is, I think, where I feel slightly sorry for outside, you know, investors trying to get in. It's not just enough to look at the data. You do also need to understand, you know, what are the power dynamics, I think, between the big institutions uh, in the space? What are their plans? You know, where are the big sort of structural opportunities and also weaknesses? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I totally agree with you there, right? There are, you know, these kind of catastrophic or existential you know, I wouldn't say existential, that's not the right word, but there are still some catastrophic threats to Bitcoin, mm. right? If it turns out that the, what, $5 billion in issued Tether is only 30% backed, uh, $10 billion, I thought it was 10, wow, that's insane. Well, the ten bill, if it turns out that $10 billion worth of Tether is only 30 or 40% backed, that's a huge problem, um, yeah. right? So, so you know, I... I, I um, I certainly agree with you there, and and you know there are, there are things that you definitely have to to monitor, and I think you have to do a you know some degree of of risk management, um, you know when looking at the, the space and just making sure that you're you're in real time monitoring those those bigger threats. Um, so you know my next question is you know one of the bigger things that's that's taken off recently is DeFi, and you know there have been so many people have gone into DeFi. You know I'm not so interested in going down that rabbit hole. But, but kind of more broadly, you know, one of the things that DeFi has exposed is this really big, big, you know, interest in crypto lending. Um, so, so what are your thoughts about crypto lending and, and what do you think the associated risks are? So I think that crypto lending, it sort of has a bright future. I think a lot of people that get into Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies get into it because they think the price is going to go up. And when that's the case, especially when there's a tax penalty for selling, you then have an incentive to lend out you know, your cryptocurrency because you might need some fiat liquidity, but you still want to hold on to the underlying asset because you expect that price to go up and you don't want the capital gain hit. And so I can see a lot of interest, and, you know, and there has been a lot of interest um, for lending you know, cryptocurrency. I don't fully understand who all the people who are borrowing it are. Sure, you borrow it to short and so on, is that happening in 
a great enough volume, especially at, say at the moment, if we go into a continued bull market to support some of the rates uh, that you see. And, and so I do wonder if there's going to be this structural imbalance between so many of the Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency holders who essentially want to be long, but also want to lend. And you know, we had Coinbase, for example, recently announced that they're going to allow retail customers to um, borrow against their crypto. So you, know, you can see this is starting to get some real mainstream adoption. And I just think it's going to be really interesting. Is there going to be some structural imbalance in that market? And if so, you know, I guess, what's the trade to take advantage of that? What risks does that start to bake into the system? Well, I think something that not many people are talking about is the um, arbitrage that exists between Grayscale and borrowing in crypto, um, right? You have you know these exchange-traded products, whether it's you know GBTC, which is Grayscale's Bitcoin Investment Trust, or EFI, which is their Ethereum trust. And, and basically what it is, is you know, as an accredited investor, you can either take your US dollars or you can take your Bitcoin and you can bring it to these exchange traded products, which have, um, you know, Bitcoin has a six month lockup period. Um, and then investors, you know, from their Fidelity or from their um, Charles Schwab account or whatever else it is, can get exposure to Bitcoin in their retirement accounts or just, just generally get exposure to Bitcoin through GBTC or ETH. The thing is, these products trade at a very large premium to the underlying value that's locked in them. In the case of ETHE, at one point, it was trading at 850% premium to the NAV. Um, and, and GBTC continues to trade at 20% premium to NAV. So I constantly wonder you know, how much of this is real demand for Bitcoin when you see things like Grayscale holding $6 billion um, you know, worth of, of crypto or how much of it is, you know, somebody borrowing at this egregious 7%, you know, borrow rate for Bitcoin and then putting it into GBTC just to take advantage of the spreads. So they're not actually speculating on the value of Bitcoin. They're just speculating that a retail investor will pay more, you know, to have that exposure, you know, in their IRA or, or you know, in their Charles Schwab account. Great. Well, I mean, that's a fantastic example of this sort of structural imbalance that I'm talking about and someone finding the trade that makes that work. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, one more kind of, you know, we, we've done a lot of, um, you know, things around, you know, government and, and regulation and risk in the space. So just one more of those before we get into, you know, what gets you excited? Because, you know, we're in crypto at the end of the day because we're excited about this industry, because we're passionate about this industry and because, you know, we have a shared belief that, that it's going to succeed. You know, my next question is, you know, certainly, at least in my opinion, regulatory uncertainty has played some role in containing the growth of digital assets. Um, you know, whether it be the SEC's hesitance to approve a Bitcoin ETF under Jay Clayton, you know, the NYDFS cracking down on players like Bitfinex um, and, and you know, Tether uh, or, you know, the UK's FCA cracking down on the industry, um, you know, or even things like threats from from Donald Trump, right, uh, you know, about Bitcoin. You know, how do you see, you know, especially as somebody who works very closely with government agencies, uh, digital asset regulation shaping up over the next few years? Yeah. So I actually think it's important to say one thing about regulation is that I think people in crypto give regulators a hard time not appreciating that they have a difficult job. In crypto, like I don't always understand what's going on. And I work in this full time and I have access to a lot of information. If you're a regulator, it's even harder for them to understand what's going on. So they can often take a cautious approach and say, look, we're just not going to do stuff. And actually, would you want a regulator in the heat of 2017 to make some rules and 
now, you know, in 2020, you might look at those rules that they made and be like, oh, I wish they hadn't done that. I really wish I sort of hadn't pushed them to do that. So I think the fact that they held off is probably a good thing. But they've climbed up, at least a lot of them have climbed up that, you know, sort of hill or mountain of understanding. And now they're getting more comfortable with things. I mean, when Bitcoin ETF, maybe after performance of ETFs through the sort of recent market turbulence we've had in, you know, traditional assets, it's easier to make the case for Bitcoin now. But I think my broader point is, you know, that understanding has got there. And I'm really actually, if you ask me what I'm excited about on the regulatory front, it's they're now starting to get to the position where they feel confident and they have the data and they have the understanding to actually start taking some positions which allow the industry to go forward. So I think that will start to come, you know, relatively soon. I think the other thing that probably actually gets me more excited and I think is related is when you see people like, you know, Square's Cash App driving really large amounts of Bitcoin buying and they're seeing huge growth. For me, that is the transition of cryptocurrency really into the mainstream. It's actually when, you know, I mean, Square's not perhaps a traditional financial institution, but it's, I guess, more traditional than a pure crypto exchange. When they start to understand crypto and provide really large amounts of people access to it very easily, it's going to start being treated like any other financial asset. It sort of starts speaking the same language. I think that's where you start to get a lot of progress. And do you think that that's going to come with regulation? Do you think that's going to come pre-regulation? Like, what is the, you know, time, you know, I'm not asking you for an exact date, obviously, but, you know, when we saw this 2017 bull market, right, we saw this massive rush into crypto, right, and this massive retail rally and millions and millions of people signing up for, you know, accounts on places like Coinbase. At one point, Bittrex literally could not allow any more signups because they just they, they could, physically couldn't handle it. You know, Poloniex, you know, had, yeah. you know, when they were acquired by Circle had like, 200,000 outstanding customer support, you know, uh, issues that had to be addressed right away by, by circle. Right. Um, and so, you know, do you see us getting to a place like that again, or do you think this is going to be uh, a, a more long-term, uh, you know, process? I mean, I think the industry's got its shit together a lot more than it had in 2017. I mean, no one was expecting that to happen. Um, and I mean, you know, yes, Coinbase crashes when the price spikes occasionally now, but um, in general, the market infrastructure, the regulatory infrastructure is you know, so much more mature than it was. Um, you know, go to mid-March this year, not a price increase, but a price decline. There were some problems, but it wasn't that disorderly. Um, you know, like it was unpleasant, but it wasn't a total meltdown. And if there was, the, you know, this current rally, I think is being absorbed pretty well and regulators seem relatively calm about it. And the infrastructure seems to be responding and the liquidity is there and people are already, you know, KYC authorized. So I think the market's in a much, much better place um, to handle another wave of interest. I think the thing that's actually interesting that's missing is, you know, broader interest from say the mainstream media i think crypto is going to have to earn its next you know time in the sun um it's sort of had its chance to get that just enormous surge of interest and i mean now, do you think that could just be a price related thing though like the second bitcoin hits 20k again right you know do, do you think that doesn't reignite some level of interest 
Oh, there'll be interest for sure, but I think it will be it will be more skeptical. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm I think, kind of think, waiting for the next uh, Nathaniel Popper, everyone's getting hilariously rich, but you're not article. Yes. For me. <laughs> that, that's, that's, I mean, the, the, the Christmas sweaters, the Bitcoin, Ethereum Christmas sweaters, who can forget that? And I don't know if you remember the CNBC used to have a Bitcoin price ticker on the way up to 20K. Um, and just during that, yeah, I mean, look, you know, you know, that was like the, 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 uh, you know, that, that was, you know, I, I like, I agree with you. I don't know if that's ever going to be recreated, but I think, to your point, we're seeing so much infrastructure, regulatory support. You know, these these exchanges are much more secure. You know, you guys are doing great work on helping us to understand, you know, how these, you know, these blockchain networks work, right? You know, custody solutions are better. I mean, I feel like these last three years have allowed the infrastructure to come in place that we weren't ready for $20,000 Bitcoin in, in 2017. But I certainly feel like we're, we are so much closer to being ready now than we were before. Yep. Um, and so, so my last question is, is a non-crypto question, which is if you hadn't gone into crypto, um, what would you be doing today? Um, uh, you know, assuming that you never discovered this space. Yeah. So I think, I guess what I'd like to do certainly like next and therefore probably where I'd be if I didn't get into crypto, I would love to do the economics of computer games. I'm actually not a huge gamer. But I love the fact that these worlds are so huge and they have so many people and so such interesting, you know, economic dynamics like Fortnite. I mean, yeah, they've got a spat with Apple at the moment about the 30% fee, but actually the amount of money they generate and the way that people kind of go and interact with it, it's a bit like crypto. It's just a big value system with loads of people interacting in really kind of strange, unique ways. Uh, and that would be fascinating to kind of study and understand. Yeah, I think that's 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 really interesting, and also kind of relates in a way to in, incentive structures in, in in digital assets, right? Um, you know, with you know the utility of certain protocols and and you know potentially things. You know, you know, I, I'm personally a little bit skeptical on them, but like you know NFTs and and potentially bringing digital characters from one video game to another. So I think there's certainly some interesting overlap there as well. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the last thing is just where, where can people find you? You know, where can they, you know, find you personally, you know, find out about Chainalysis and Market Intel? Yeah, so go check out markets.chainalysis.com. There's, as we said, like a lot of really great data. Like I'm proud of it. Um, there's some cool stuff. And you can sign up for the weekly report. So every Thursday, I give my view on where the market's going, both in the short term and in the longer term. You can see me on Twitter. So uh, Philip underscore Gradwell. Or on LinkedIn, kind of just posted on both. Uh, and yeah, reach out to me, Philip, uh, with one L at chainalysis.com. Always happy to hear from people. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Philip. It was a great discussion. Hey, really, you know, pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.